Well, I've called today's talk uh, Mo Money, uh, not, not Mo Money, Mo Options, uh, Mo Options, Mo Problems. And it's based off of uh, Notorious B.I.G.'s song, Mo Money, Mo Problems. Maybe you've heard the song before, Mo Money, Mo Problems, uh, B.I.G., P.O.P.P.A., No Info for the D.E.A., Federal Agents Mad Because I'm Howard. Flagrant, flagrant. Tap my cell in the phone. Howard, in the basement. That's right. Very good. <laughs> Howard doesn't know uh, Notorious B.I.G. But anyway, I was thinking about that song, Mo Money, Mo Problems. And the truth is, is that Mo Options sometimes equal Mo Problems. And we've been doing a series called A Faithful Presence, How to Become a Non-Anxious Presence in an Anxious World. And one of the things that experts are saying in American culture is that the Mo Options you have the more anxiety you, it can result in. It's actually contributing to more anxiety. American culture, we have a culture of options. Now, I think options aren't always bad. The other day I had to buy an umbrella for the pool area um, and it was awesome and I did that on amazon.com and we had over a thousand options to pick from from umbrellas. I love it. When I go to the store, I love the amount of orange juice options I have. I love that really pulpy orange juice and some people are like, nope. Uh, some people like that frozen stuff that you have to hack away at it with a knife to get a couple drops. And I love all those options. I love the amount of options of toothpaste I have in America. It's great. Got to keep the McDonald's hot. I love it. And there's other options, however, that we're not so sure if these options are good or bad. Just consider dating on the apps. Um, I won't do a show of hands how many people met through apps uh, or didn't meet through apps, but I recently read an article on dating apps, and dating apps give a single person so many options or the idea of options, but the article actually questioned the overall effectiveness, stating that not that many people are actually getting together, that there's an increase of options. Those options in dating aren't actually leading to long-term commitment. In some ways, more dating options led to more problems. And I know you know some of those problems. You've experienced some of those problems in the dating apps. Now, I'm not saying you should not be on dating apps or that you should. I'm just stating that options, the options of dating and you're swiping left and right, aren't always contributing to good things. In 2004, there's an American psychologist by the name of Barry Schwartz he wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice, Why More is Less, right? Paradox of Choice, More is Less. And in the book, he argued that when you eliminate consumer choices, it actually leads to a decline in emotional anxiety on behalf of the consumer. And too many choices actually make you feel a little emotionally unstable. And this guy was just talking about mustard. He wasn't even talking about important choices. Also along the same lines, there I recently read an article about a TED Talk by a woman named Renata Selekel, who's a philosopher, whatever that is. She's a philosopher and she says that there's a flip side to too many options. When we have endless options, when we have an endless string of choices, this can actually lead us to anxiety. It can actually lead us to feelings of guilt because we're worried 
that we're going to make the wrong decision. Maybe you've heard of something called analysis paralysis or paralysis analysis, however you want to say that. Maybe you've even heard stories of immigrants who come to the United States and they go to their grocery store for the first time and they walk into the dairy section and they're overwhelmed by the amount of choices of yogurt in the dairy section and it brings them to tears. They don't know how to make a decision based on the amount of options. So why do I talk about all these things? Well, if you want to address anxiety in the culture, if you want to address anxiety, potential anxiety in your own life, Regardless of what you think about God, regardless of what you think about faith, there might be some wisdom to limiting your options in general. Just it's good advice to limit your options. Too many options can hurt us. And what people in both the secular fields of psychiatry and psychology and philosophy is that too many options contribute to anxiety and anxiousness. So it might just be a good idea to limit your options anyway. Now, in the scriptures, we see that Jesus talks to people specifically about all the options that they have. The only difference is, is that Jesus invites people to limit their options for very different reasons. He invites people to limit their options so that they can experience the fullness that comes from a relationship with God. Yes, I'm sure he saw the wisdom in limiting your options because too many options can hurt us psychologically. But he invites us to limit our options for very different reasons. And so, in this story that we're about to read, Jesus is like on the outskirts of Israel. And he's touring around, healing towns, doing cool stuff. He's hanging around, and at some point he decides that he's going to go to Jerusalem. And when he goes to Jerusalem, he knows that he is going to be arrested, illegally tried in a sham trial, and he knows that he's going to be executed. He knows this, yet he decides to move. He says he turns his head and faces towards Jerusalem and started heading towards Jerusalem. And along the way, he meets different people who are watching him walk to his death. They didn't realize he was going to die, but he knows he's walking to his death. He meets different people along the road. And specifically, there's a story where he meets three different people that have three different kinds of options. And let's see what happens. So, man number one. In Luke 9, verse 57, as they were walking along the road towards Jerusalem, like I told you, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Oh, okay, so what? Foxes and... Okay, well, if you look at this story uh, in Matthew 8, which is a different book of the Bible, you get a different perspective of the same story. Same story told from a different perspective. And what we come to understand is that this man that says, I will follow you wherever you go, this man was a teacher of the law. He was a, something called a scribe. And he was wealthy. He was a wealthy scribe. And wealthy scribes, if you don't know this, I don't know if, if you're an expert in first century Judaism, but if you're not, a wealthy scribe was a well-respected man in the community. 
And Jesus challenges the well-respected man that everybody knows. He says, look, if you're doing this, if you're saying you're going to follow me because you think it's going to be fun, if you think this is going to help your public image, if you think this joining up with me is going to help you become more loved and respected and powerful, listen, dude, you might be wrong. You see, following Jesus requires sacrifice. Following Jesus doesn't always lead you to more good options all the time. It doesn't always lead to good options for your dating life, for your marriage, for your finances, for like just your general life satisfaction. Following Jesus can and will require sacrifice. And following Jesus isn't always easy. Listen, there's so many times when Nikki and I, I mean, we've been in ministry so long, not as long as some other people, but other, we've been in it a while. You know, it's not our first rodeo. And Nikki and I, we've been led to sacrifice from time to time. And to, let me put it this way. We've been, we've been invited by God to sacrifice time and time again. And there was times when we made sacrifices and we just didn't get anything out of it. Like, we were like, oh, I'll make the sacrifice, God. And we did it, we, whether it was financial or with, with people. And it wasn't like transactional. It wasn't like when we made that sacrifice, we got something out of return. Being in ministry over the last 20 years, I can't tell you how many times we've poured our time and our energy and our money and our home into people. And you know what people are like. You pour it into people and you watch them respond with ungratefulness. You watch people respond with rudeness. Yeah, I don't know if you know like how many people have treated us with a level of entitlement over the last 20 years. Like you owe this to me. And sometimes I think it's almost burned us out in ministry. I mean, not me. I'm very religious. Maybe Nikki a little bit. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's your birthday. Uh, anyway, but the way we've been able to keep going, the way we've been able to press through and sacrifice, even though people have treated us poorly sometimes over the years, the way we've been able to keep going is by understanding that what we do is a sacrifice to God. It's not a sacrifice to other people. Because if we had made those sacrifices to other people, we would have always, almost always been in a state of disappointment. They would have disappointed us. And what, we do, what we've had to do is stay focused on, we make these sacrifices for God, regardless of what we get in return. And because we've done that, it has been absolutely worth it. That we can continue to give our time, our energy, and our resources to people that don't reciprocate to us. Because we weren't doing it because we were going to get something out of it now. And we believe, and in our core, that Jesus has actually saved our lives. That he's come into our lives and that he's radically renewed us. And we get to give things to people even though they don't respect us sometimes. That's just the reality of it. And what Jesus says to this man is the same thing that he might say to you. If you make a sacrifice and for God, but really it's for you, 
because you think that this will increase your options in terms of your life satisfaction, the American dream, your own personal growth, that may not work out for you. But if you're going to make it, if you're going to make it for the person of Jesus, if you're going to make it for him, if you're going to make it for, but it, it, it might work, but if you don't do it, if you're doing it for your own personal brand or your own career path, it may not work. And if you're writing, if, if you're taking notes, uh, write this down. If you're taking notes, write this down. Following Jesus will cost me something. And in many cases, following Jesus will cost you everything. In your relationships, in your finances, in your preferences, and so on. Have I made myself clear? That was man number one. Didn't make the cut. Man number two, verse 59. He says to another man, but follow, he says to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now the difference between man number one and man number two is that Jesus actually invited this guy to follow him. He says, follow me. Uh, and the man essentially says, Jesus, not now, but not forever. And Jesus' response to him is not all warm and fuzzy. Jesus was very direct with him about his family options. Now, the backstory of this bury my father thing is really interesting. It was a common phrase that was used in the Middle East as an excuse. It wasn't like this man was in his like uh, first communion suit on his way to go bury his dad. My dad is at the funeral parlor. I got to get going. It wasn't, that's not what was happening. This was a first century excuse. And most scholars who understand this believe that the father probably wasn't even dead. And in many cases, the father wasn't even sick. He wasn't even having a terminal disease. And so what the man is saying is essentially this. Jesus, I like what you're saying. I think it's the right thing. But you don't understand. I have a long-standing commitment to my family and to my father that supersedes the way I would be able to follow you if I started following you. So I will totally do this. I am in to follow you, but you got to give me like five or ten years. I have to get to the end of this thing with my family commitments, with my dad, before I can do this. And Jesus responds. He says, there are people who are spiritually dead, who, uh, who do know nothing about the kingdom, who can manage themselves. And Jesus says, listen, you wanted to give me everything. That requires reordering. That requires reordering, young man. And that requires you to reprioritize everything. Your relationships, your values, your commitments, your sex life, even your long-term commitments and the options you have with your family. Following Jesus requires reprioritizing everything. So what does it mean to reprioritize everything? Well, I know how you can determine what your current priorities are. Just show me your calendar and show me your credit card statement and I'll show you what your top priorities are. Just next time you have a minute, take a look at those two things. And I know you have all the apps on your phone. You have your iCal and you do have your bank account somewhere and uh, you can look it up and you ask yourself this question. Does my time and does my money reflect that I've reprioritized everything around the person of Jesus.
Just go ahead and look at those two things and then get back to me and let me know. And we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. Man number three. Man number three. Ready? In verse 61. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit in the service for service in the kingdom of God. So what's going on here? Is Jesus opposed to people coming and saying goodbye to their family? Again, much like the second man, Jesus isn't asking the man to ghost his family. Um, it's not like he was like, Jebediah was headed to pavilions to pick up some Topo Chico, and now he's been gone for like eight days. Should we call the cops? <laughs> Should we fill out a police report? No, 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 no. That's what cults do. Cults make you cut everybody out and cut everyone out immediately. And Jesus is not demanding that the man be irresponsible. What Jesus is getting at is this man's distracted heart. This man had one option of Jesus in the one hand, and he had some other option in the other. And Jesus says that if you're divided heart, if you're divided in your heart, and if you're divided in what you know you really want, then following me isn't going to be a good option for you. Why? Because you'll always be wondering. You'll always be looking at the grass that's greener on the other side. Following Jesus requires an undivided heart. And I don't know much about farming. I don't know much about plowing. But I do know this. You don't plow one, like staring at the ground, looking one foot ahead. You don't plow with your head on swivel. You plow, plow with the horizon in mind, looking ahead. Only straight ahead. Staying focused on what's ahead. You stay focused on what you know you're aiming at. There are so many options, people that can divide our hearts. So let me ask you a personal question. What are you looking at? What are the options that you have in your life that you're keeping open? And Jesus says, let it go. Stop living the divided life and follow me. And if you do, I promise it'll be the best thing you've ever done. Now, the problem with talking about reducing your options is that Americans, in particular American Christians, have a way of mental partitioning. Like, meaning we can give mental assent to giving Jesus our all, but we end up never really following through. Sometimes we leave decisions in decision purgatory. Like, God, I know you're, you feel that God is inviting you to make a change in your life, but you don't want to make the change, so you say something like, oh, I'm going to pray about it. And you just continue to pray about it for 20 years, and you never really have to make a decision because you're on the journey. Because you're not, you're smart enough not to, to say no, because you know when you say no to God, things go not right for you, but you're not saying yes yet, so you just leave it in decision purgatory. And the hard truth is that mental and emotional assent isn't enough. And an even harder truth around this is that verbal assent, verbal commitment to God doesn't seem to be enough in these verses. I will follow you, but. I will follow you, but. And here's what we see. Here's what Jesus is saying here. Talk is cheap. 
Now, right now in the American media landscape, there are many millennials and there are many Gen Z folks, people who post their point of view on Instagram, Twitter, and if you still have Facebook, they post it on Facebook too. And they believe that when they've posted their opinion on something public, they've actually done something about the issue. I've done so. I've played my part. I went on Twitter and I said, orange man, bad. I went on Twitter and I said, this is, can no longer stand in my state, California. Newsome, you better get it right. I, it was like three lines on my story. It disappeared in 24 hours, but it was there. And I think I made an impact. And they believe, and many people, I mean, not other, I mean, it's just, you know, other people, not us. They believe that they're signaling that their awareness of enough, their, excuse me, let me just, they're signaling that by posting, that their awareness about the issue is doing enough, that they've done something, they've done their part. But we all know that they haven't done anything. Like some of us, I look around the room, I know some of you like uh, have given so much of your time, energy, and money to think about the unhoused and the homeless and how to feed them and how to think about them and how to pray for them and how to engage with them in real relationship. It, that is so much, you're in the game, man. You're in the arena. You're fighting for it. But yeah, and then you pop on Instagram and they're like, wait, shut down, that's about the homeless. But they haven't done anything about it. Talk is cheap, man. Do you know what I'm saying? It's not enough just to talk about it in the same way Many people can make mental commitments, they can make emotional commitments, they can make verbal commitments, they can even make commitments that are like um, decision purgatory, like I talked about, like you never really have to decide. They can make all these commitments to limit their options when it comes to following Jesus, but in reality, they haven't done jack squat. Talk is cheap. You actually have to do something. I actually have to do something. So as we close, I want to provide you with an illustration. For some of you, what you might actually need to do. In 1519, Hernan Cortez landed in Veracruz. He was in Europe, and he sailed to the United States. And he was a Spanish conquistador. Now... Cortez is not necessarily a good guy. Uh, he participated in genocide. I mean, I'm not, I mean, thumbs down on genocide, right? Okay, not cool. But if we look at what he did from a leadership lesson, it's actually quite valuable. And so, Hernan Cortez, they land, they get all their little rowboats off their little sailboats, and they get onto the shore and they put all their equipment on the shore and Cortez sends a few people back, and what do they do? Burn all the ships. They burn the ships. They burn the ships to the ground, and the men were probably sitting on the shore like, what? What is going on? He burned the ships, and Cortez left himself with no option for him and his men but to move forward. Listen, retreat is easy when you have options. Let that ruminate in your brain for a minute. We all cling to things that act as a crutch or like an escape hatch 
or an exit strategy. It's our safety net, just in case. We say things like, oh, burning the boats doesn't make sense. I mean, Cortez should have kept at least one so they could go back and get supplies. We tell ourselves what Cortez did doesn't make any sense. I mean, after all, it would have made sense to keep at least one. But Cortez was on a mission. And he knew that the only way to keep himself and his crew from quitting on the mission was to take that option off the table. What Cortez did was force himself to either succeed or die. Retreat was not an option. Options, folks. Options. I believe that in order to become a faithful presence, a non-anxious presence in our world, there are times when we just got to burn the ships. There's times where we got to burn our options. The question I think that you need to ask yourself is, what are my boats? What are my ships? What am I afraid of letting go of? What are my options that I'm keeping on the table, if I'm really honest with myself, that keep me from chasing after Jesus with all of my life? I can't answer that question for you, but you need to ponder this question. What boats do I need to burn in my life? Jesus calls us to get rid of all the options and to get rid of the endless options that are already causing anxiety. And he calls us to burn those things. And sometimes the best thing we can do is just burn the boats. So here's what I'd like to do. We're going to close. Number one, as you're sitting here, I'm inviting you to commit to burning one of your boats today. Commit to burn a boat right now. You know it's not good for you. You know you've been toying around with it. Maybe you've left it in decision purgatory. It's limiting you. Maybe it's a positive thing you refuse to move forward on because you're holding it. It might not just be a negative thing. It might not be a sin. It might be like, I know I'm supposed to, and you need to burn the option. You're like, I don't know if I want to choose to do that because it would be hard or expensive or all the things. But whatever you do, do the thing you know you're supposed to do. Burn the boat. It's time. And I'd like to encourage you to make a good trade. Because burning a boat with God is a good trade. It's a good trade for you, and it's just like an average trade for him. Because what we see in the scriptures is that we have a God in Jesus that loves us, that cares for us, that's for us, he believes in us, and he trades us bad things for good things. He, traces, he trades us all the problems that we have for empowerment and peace and hope. And in return, in a supernatural way, he takes that bad option off the table for you. And he just has a way of like, you know, putting it in the, uh, you know, like the trash folder on your computer. It just somehow goes away. I don't know how things go away in that trash folder, but they go away. And that's what God, he says he removes our options, our problems as far as the east or from the west. The things that harm us, that hurt us. He just gets rid of it for us. And the reason he does this is because he loves you, because he loves me. Now I'm going to squeeze. Let's keep you out of mental ascent. Number two, make a plan to burn that boat this week. 
Okay, so commit to making a, number one was commit to burning a boat. Number two was make a plan to burn that boat. Here's what I'm actually going to do to follow through with the thing. Are you tracking? Like you understand the difference between I commit and like we're going to sing in a little bit. Like, oh Lord, I commit. And then number two is I'm at, here's the plan I'm going to do. Now here's where it gets hard. Number three, tell someone in this room after I say you're dismissed, tell someone in the room about the boat you plan to burn. In the courtyard, tell them the boat you plan to burn so that you're accountable. And so that when they ask you about it next week, you're like, yeah, I did it. You understand? Like, commit to it. Make a plan. Tell someone in this room about it. And then you can just be free because when we're back here next Sunday, seven days from now, you're, they're going to be like, how was it? Did you do the thing? And you're going to be like, yeah, I was able to do it. So that's what I think you should do. Commit, plan, do it. I also think that we should do some ministry right now, so why don't we all stand? We're going to worship one more time. And um, let's pray, and let's see if God wants to highlight a single boat for you to burn today. Okay? So I'm just going to pause. So Holy Spirit, I ask you to come. What is an option you're inviting each of us to let go of today, to burn? So I'm just waiting. There's nothing magical here. I, I, I'm asking you to ask God, you know, and if, if there's one you're trying to avoid thinking about right now, that's the one. The one you're trying to avoid thinking about. I think for some of you, it's financially related. Others of you, it is the idea of a relationship. So that's two areas. So there's a financial one for some of you, and there's a relationship one for some of you.